welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, today's episode is a pretty powerful one. So did you know that a child died because they couldn't read the referral letter that they were sent by the NHS? Well, that happened and it happened relatively recently. So a Romanian child was sent a letter, a referral letter for an MRI scan. The family couldn't read it though. They could read certain parts, so they could read the date, the time. They could understand that they needed to be there at that time. But the problem was that they hadn't done the right preparation. So I think it was around eating beforehand. So what happened was the child wasn't able to have that scan. They were sent away. They came back, they were sent away again. Same thing happened. And by the time the child got the scan, the results meant that the child was no longer able to receive treatment. They weren't going to make it. And unfortunately, the child died. Now, I'm sure you'll kind of see and understand and appreciate that's entirely preventable. And it's preventable with really simple technology. It's essentially just translating information into a different language and appreciating that it needed to be translated into a different language. Now, it's not a wildly high-tech solution that's needed, but a tech solution nonetheless can really help with that. And my guest today is Ghalib Khan. Now, I've known Ghalib for many years. He is an entrepreneur that has a very personal story behind why he's doing this, but he is translating information, healthcare information that's given to patients. He's translating that and making sure that it's given to patients in the right language, in the right way, that's completely understandable. And in doing so, is changing hundreds of thousands of lives. So on the episode today, we talk about that story. We talk about Garlib's personal story and how he has ended up being the entrepreneur that he is with the company that he has. Um, and we talk about a few different things about patient experience as well and what's important and how we make sure this hopefully at some point never happens again. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this one. So Garlib, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. Thanks, James. Thanks for the introduction. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. Obviously, this is incredibly sad for someone like me, like a general reader, but for someone like yourself, I imagine evokes a lot of different reactions because you know that it's solvable, right? So you tell me, man, what are you doing at Written Medicine and, and why is this article so relevant to what you are doing? So first of all, it's a very low-tech problem. Um, it's not even that high-tech of a, um, a problem to solve. We don't need AI or machine learning in these translation processes because a lot of the time, once you've done these translations, you keep them because these are standardised letters that you send out from the hospital. Mm. They're not going to be different for every patient, right? So um, some of the patients for an ultrasound scan may have to drink um, a couple of litres of water before coming. Some people may have to be nailed by mouth in this case. And so it's very easy to provide and map. But the problem is in the NHS, um, you don't have, or you have ethnicity that's been coded, but it's from 2001. So it's 20 years old. They've probably got less than 10 ethnicities on there. But we've also been asking for um, country of origin um, to be coded. We've asked for languages all, um, um, such as this case to be coded and also religion. And this is to help improve and personalise the care 
that patients get um, and improve their experience. Um, what we do at Written Medicine is we provide accessible and bilingual medication content around the medication that's been prescribed or dispensed in the hospital or in the pharmacy. And we do this by uh, not using AI machine learning. We've got roughly a database of three and a half thousand directions of use phrases that you combine together to make a full direction of use. Um, and then we put them for a four-step language development process utilizing four human beings who are experts in those languages with a clinician, uh, particularly a pharmacist who is bilingual and will go away, test the combinations out over a number of weeks and come back to us and tell us whether something is changing or not. And typically, um, these are small changes that we would have to add. Sometimes there are certain languages that have multiple words for the same word, like tablet in Romanian. There's four words for tablet in Romanian, but there is no word for pessary in Romanian. So how do we then do that translation and make sure the patient's inserting the medication in the correct place? Um, in, in this case, a lot of the hospitals actually do already have letters explaining to the patient the procedure that needs to be um, that will be taking place um, and how they need to prepare for it. Um, but because of that um, codification element not being there, they can't map the letters in the different languages to the particular patient. You have right. they would have to save it somewhere on their computer and keep on going to that file to retrieve it and then send it um, as an email or as a text message or um, by post to the patient. So it's a um, laborious, multi-step process at the moment, which it doesn't need to be. And the report highlights this as well. It talks about ethnicity not being coded um, in the system. But we're also mentioning the uh, report as well because we um, were interviewed by the, his um, for um, you know, being a translation service and improving patient experience mm. um, um, even though it's nothing to do with um, patient letters at the moment but we've also been approached by multiple organizations to help them with their letters and standardizing those letters processes so if you take what's happening right now and I, I know this is certainly in the explanation you've just given um, but I just want to make this incredibly clear if you take what's happening right now where we don't know, like I, as a say GP, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether my patient can read and write in English. Like I just don't, even if they come to me speaking the Queen's English, the fact is yeah. I don't actually know if they can read and write in English. And you can bet that if they can't, and they, even if they speak English incredibly well, they may well be too proud to say it or don't want to say it or whatever. And they're going to, they're going to take risks then. And we're taking a huge risk then in what, in what we prescribe. Now, if you expand that into um, a GP seeing a patient for whom English is their second language, well, the chances of them now uh, reading and writing in English is even less and then for whom English is not only their second, but perhaps their third, and they don't speak it very well either, then obviously it's, we're getting less and less and less here. Now, you tell me, like, yeah. for, for the GPs that are in those scenarios, and in fact, you know, let's say the GP was actually able to talk to that patient in Hindi at that time by whatever chance that they could, and, and, they, and they had that discussion, they then write the prescription in a borough of London and send them away right? 
you tell me like what are the chances that that patient actually gets that in hindi is that zero percent chance now like that that actually comes back in like what like this problem must be enormous and i'm just trying to sort of grasp it in my mind like what the size this problem is so secondary care and primary care have interpreting services right right but um community pharmacy doesn't have access to it right so we will typically a independent pharmacist just say in east london where he knows the main languages are romanian polish punjabi and hindi they will um hire from those communities to reflect the languages but that pharmacist typically won't know um the ability of that person speaking those languages because he's not just hiring them for the language services also their competence to work in a pharmacy as well so um but that's not been tested um so we don't know what's really being said. Um, I can claim that I speak Urdu and Hindi as a second language, but when it comes to inserting suppositories or pessaries, I won't know the technical yeah. um, words for those, or you know the um, um, the formal words for those processes. Um, I will know the you know the slang words, and that will create issues and embarrassment in the conversations and stuff. Um, so, and typically. Um, and pa- um, patients also will get shy from particular communities if a male pharmacy worker was to speak to them and they were female and vice versa about particular conditions and stuff. Another example is just because an interpreter has been provided in the hospital and the medication was prescribed in the hospital, it doesn't mean the medication is going to be dispensed in the pharmacy or in the community pharmacy where we'll go the same day. So my son he was seen in January, for example, um, by a dermatologist online, um, 10 minute consultation. We didn't get the medication until March. So whatever wow. was said in that consultation in January, we're not going to remember 100% until March yeah. how to apply these creams and so forth. And a lot of these creams, when we're getting them, it just says as directed on them doesn't say apply twice a day blah 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 for a particular area and he's received multiple creams for multiple areas so we had to write down during the consultation what those were going to be for do you have estimates on this on the sort of size of this problem either from i suppose the individual morbidity mortality or maybe like financial at systems level do you do you know the kind of scale of it from either of those perspectives so we know that um, typically ethnic minority communities tend to complain the least when it comes to services that they've received. Right. Right. Um, as someone like Dr. Bola Owalabi just said last week, these communities are not the well-heeled or sharp-elbowed to know what they're doing and demanding the service that they need. Right. Sometimes um, um, errors do occur and deaths do occur, and but the profession may not know about it and one wow. of these cases where is a in a hospital in london what i was told by a superintendent pharmacist where they're providing outpatient pharmacy dispensary services uh, in that area where the patient did um, pass away but we know for a fact that mistakes happen on a daily basis um, patients just randomly sharing medicines and so forth not knowing what those are typically that could be even in an english-speaking community as well but in an ethnic minority community yeah, it's just like, oh, you, you haven't taken your blood pressure tablets? Oh, take mine. Um, you know, right. we can share ours and so so forth. So, you know, um, these 
uh, typically do happen. Um, and when it comes to costs, we spend two hundred. Sorry, we spend twenty billion a year on um, um, pharmaceuticals um, throughout the whole NHS. Now, just say ten percent of those medications are wasted. That's two billion a year that goes straight into a landfill. Now we know ethnic minorities, particularly from the South Asian community, are six times more likely to be on um, long-term medication due to diabetes and cardiovascular diseases and high blood pressure problems. Um, so these communities are more likely to be on long-term medication. And when we add um, the component of language into it and um, language barriers, there was a study done by Aston Medicine's adherence study uh, where they found that 70% of these patients with language barriers were non-adherent to the medication. 70, 70? 70%, yeah. So 70%. So um, but, um, in the general white population, it's 30 to 50% mm. in, the, um, in that community, in the heart of Birmingham, where the study was done, they looked at 6,000 GP records by the way. So they didn't have to interview the patients and stuff. They just looked mm. at their records and they were seeing, you know, um, in anomalies in the uh, way they were taking the medication and stuff. And when they did do some small interviews with uh, particular groups, they found that their language barriers existed. Even in our study, when we did our academic study with 152 patients, um, we uh, before we gave the intervention of a bilingual pharmacy label, 58% of the patients said they were taking the medications correctly or thought they were taking the medications correctly. When we gave them a pharmacy label in their own language, um, which is in English and another language, they um, over 62% of those patients discovered they'd been taking the medications incorrectly or not reading the warnings associated with it. It's shocking, man. Honestly, it's, it's shocking the scale of the problem but seemingly the i don't know like the like how obvious the solution is can you uh, well there's another thing as well actually that i just want to mention here that like there's there's adherence and the sort of morbidity mortality end of this problem which is like here's all the bad stuff that can happen when this goes wrong but there's also the other bit of like the patient experience but also all of the benefits if this were to go extremely well and you really push those adherence numbers down you know uh, up sorry um and you know the the waste of medication down like there's so much gain to be had on that side and it seems that the solution is well certainly obvious but i wonder what the barriers to this are now so talk to me about written medicine talk to me about what you guys are trying to do and the challenge as to why this is not everywhere right now, because clearly it should be. So the, the cha there's two challenges in this. Um, challenge A is um, commercial viability understood by the system suppliers. Um, they think mm. they don't experience it. When they speak to commissioners and people, they don't experience it themselves. We're talking about people who don't interact with um, people with language barriers, right? So they're not in the same, same social class, friend circles, you know, even professional um, 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 colleagues and so forth. You know, the only time they'd probably come across someone with language barriers is the cleaner that comes in the morning and, or in the evening, right? So 
that's about it. So that's one of the issues. And then integrating into the system suppliers. So, you know, we don't have open systems to go and integrate into your GP systems or your community pharmacy systems, or your secondary care system. These are all closed systems and they're all commercially sensitive. Mm. They're all competing against each other. And they just, you know, there's, they've got bigger fish to fry financially. Um, so this is mm. not in um, that thing. And because of that, then that means I have to go and create a second system what people need to use just specifically for the bilingual medication information. But yeah. that means the workforce having to use two different systems, right? Just say yeah. you know, in a particular area, this is a 20% of the um, 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 problem yeah. with all your patients. That means for every fifth patient you'd have to go and use on system and that's not something that's uh, really ideal so we would like this to be integrated into the system suppliers and improving accessibility so we're not just doing languages we're improving the quality of english so our core content has always been better quality english and that content is codified so it's linked um, just like the dm plus d is for medicine products in, um, in nhs digital our content is all codified and at the moment the english content is not codified so um, a doctor's got a million ways of writing take one tablet once daily one daily one every day one od and so forth whereas we've standardized mm-hmm. that so we can map to their content and then it maps to the other languages as well and we're also got pictograms for people with learning disabilities so i'm quite oh, wow. privileged to have language barriers around my family. Um, so it's not just a professional problem, but it's a personal problem at home as well. So I've got some with Down syndrome. My mom speaks English as a second language. My grandmother um, is deaf and mute from birth. And um, I've um, got dyslexia and dyspraxia as well. So I've got this whole um, uh, mix of language and communication barriers. And when I go to my mm-hmm. son's school, so he goes to a school that lang- speech and language is the main priority, and everything on his wall is in illustrations and pictures. What they're having for di- um, lunch, where they go in the afternoon, um, is it a library, is it a museum, is it a gallery? How they get in there, is it a train or is it by the coach and so forth? And I thought when they leave. Um, um, you know their um, um, educational organisations and come into the real world there's nothing to support them and all of these people as I mentioned with communication barriers are more likely to have long term conditions at a younger age so people who speak English as a first language but with a limited um, literacy um, or lower literacy um, they we know for a fact are going to be in lower income um, groups and therefore uh, probably on poorer diets and so forth, and I'm going to develop long-term conditions at a younger age. Ethnic minorities, as I mentioned, um, particular populations have particular conditions, which up to six times more likely to develop at a younger age. People will learn disabilities. They're on medication from a very early age. Um, um, and, you know, so my son, he's not on any um, routine long-term medications, but he develops, um, you know, um, upper tract um, infections, ear infections every winter. And he's on antibiotics for at least two or three months for, um, you know, every year. Mm. Uh, those creams and stuff like that. Um, so we have to apply mm. the creams to him. And so, and then you're thinking about people, you know, um, 
with Alzheimer's and dementias, they're not taking the medication properly as well. And in fact, um, there was a study done in a um, Liverpool University, sorry, a Liverpool hospital, where they found that 18% of the um, people attending A&E were because of adverse drug reactions. And this is because the medica- um, uh, most of these were coming from care homes and people who were um, take, um, taking the medications themselves. But because the medication boxes are changing all the time, they don't know what they're taking themselves. Yes, absolutely wild. I'll say it again, the scale of this problem. Um, just give me an example of somewhere where you are using written medicine or a hospital, an area, or some, somewhere that is using written medicine. And just tell me some of the experiences that they have had using written medicine to solve this problem yeah absolutely and you know it's been a um so london northwest healthcare which is ealing hospital norfolk park and central Middlesex. they they were our first customers um they've been using written medicine um soon to launch a new version of written medicine there as well um in that patch and they're um it's been mixed because patients want it they can't give it to all the patients. They started utilising it with two patients a day so that that was where they would start from. Then one day um, the chief executive came through and they showed them the innovations that they're using and they were like, wow, this is amazing. We need to do some more local publicity and so forth. Um, And the only challenging element from um, there is that it's available in hospital, but it's not available in the community pharmacies. And this is something that we are now tackling by the ICBs because before NHS England um, had the contract for community pharmacies, not the CCGs. But if you went to NHS England's pharmacy team, they would always say, well, it's not our problem. This is a regional problem. Carlo, you should go and speak to the CCGs. When we speak to the CCGs, they would say, oh, it's not our problem. You speak to NHS England, they're the contract holders for pharmacy. Yeah. And... Um, but now um, we've just recently been procured across the whole of West Yorkshire ICB um, to do the exact same thing, where it's available in the hospitals wow, and in the community pharmacies. But we're still going to be faced by that problem where it's a non-integrated product. We, we're not the barriers here. We can integrate. We've been funded mm-hmm. by NHSX to do fire integration, FHIR. Um, we've um, got our, you know, there's various different ways. We've integrated into an e-discharge system at Ealing Hospital, which was then taken over across the whole um, London Northwest Healthcare. They're now getting rid of that and they want us to integrate into CERNA. So um, the, the, it's the payers. We can't go to the system suppliers and say integrate with us because we are a third party mm. organisation um, with no commercial interest with them. But it's the customers who are utilising our software. They're the ones that has to go to the system suppliers and say, guys, what are you guys doing? Because they're also, I mean, the CQC can come in um, or the General Pharmaceutical Council can come in and do an inspection. And they're now asking, like in Leicester, in London, you know, you serve a diverse population. Show us how you're making your services more diverse. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome work that what you're doing, man. And as I say, the scale of this problem is so large. This the solution to this system or the solution to this problem is so clear. But how many times have I said this on this podcast recently that the things that excite me at the moment are the infrastructure changes? This is another example 
And now we're talking about interoperability. But this is another example of a deep infrastructure change that would enable all of this innovation. Because let's be clear, when you're going to shift from one program to another, probably 50% drop off right there. Easy. Like in a, in a snap, 50% of people are no longer going to do it now. And probably that's higher, to be perfectly frank. Um, I don't know what the actual numbers are on that, but as soon as you go to have to go to another program, another program, your ado- your ability to get adoption, which is difficult anyway, we know this is just going to drop off immediately. And here again is another example of a deep infrastructure change that will that will solve at least that problem, make it easy, get the integration, and then all of a sudden it's integrated, it's bought, it's integrated, it's used a lot, and then the benefits are going to be more clear to the buyer, and. F- and you know, the most important thing is that those benefits are going to get to those patients, all those patients that are currently not adhering, that are currently taking medication wrong, that aren't getting it right, that through no fault of their own cannot understand the instructions given to them. And to just go back to this article to finish off, you know, how many more of these articles do I have to read before something is done? And actually that frightens me a little bit because, you know, the... HSIB or, or HSIB, I think you called it, Galib, like you, they've done this investigation, they've made their recommendations, what next? And yeah, I, I just wonder, I hope there are some decision makers listening. I hope there are some people that listen to this podcast that can actually make a difference to this because I think this is such an important cause that affects so many people and has such a massive ability for impact um and so Galib, i know it's been a short episode but thank you so much for coming on mate i really appreciate it it's so important to shine a light on this and um i wish you all the best with everything you're up to buddy no thank you very much james and hopefully i can do come and give you some more updates in west yorkshire it'd be really interesting to see how the adoption goes over there just because the um, licenses have been procured it doesn't mean people want to use it that sometimes nhs trusts have their roadmaps mm-hmm. you know this is our digital roadmap garlib for mm-hmm. the next 18 months can you come back in 18 months and i'd like to see how we can influence um adoptions into the roadmap of products that are um, resolving health inequalities because i don't think there's any digital product on the market that looks at bame health inequalities and stuff and i think we were the first people to do this but it's still a struggle Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.